In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, um, the third and uh, final talk that I'll be um, blessed to uh, meditate with you on is, uh, is entitled Self-Forgetfulness, but actually we're going to see how this virtue of self-forgetfulness is also related to two other important virtues that are related to the person of Christ, which is uh, meekness and modesty. And, um, and so again, we're, we're, we're talking this weekend about um, how we, we need to, I mean, the theme is from the inside out, I think, is the, 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 the phrase that they used. Um, the importance, of course, of working on our interior life and being transformed and formed in our interior life to give us the, uh, the strength, the tools, and the grace to be able to be effective in our evangelism and missionary activities. Um, so self-forgetfulness may be an, an expression or a phrase that maybe we're not that familiar with, we don't speak of it often, but it really is um, at the core of, of what we find among those who grow in a life of holiness. Right, this this forgetfulness of themselves in order to be available to to the other and to give all glory to God. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, one of the saints prayed, "Reduce me to nothingness in my own eyes, that I may uh, that I may find grace in your eyes. Reduce me to nothingness in my own eyes, that I may find grace in your eyes." So, self-forgetfulness is related to humility, to the virtue of humility, and we know we we often um, need to sort of clarify what humility is. Humility is not just self-abasement um, or self-hatred for sure, but humility is truth, right? Humility is, the, is coming to the experiential knowledge of the truth of who I am and who God is. Right? And humility allows me to ascribe w what belongs to God and what, is, what belongs to me. So what properly belongs to me is my nothingness. In other words, I myself have no existence or being outside of God calling me into existence and being. I myself have no power to keep myself in existence apart from God who sustains me in existence. Right? So in reality, I'm nothing, not because I'm debasing myself, because that's the truth. That I came out of nothingness, and unless God sustains me, and grants me the grace of, of immortality, then I return to nothingness. Right? And so what does belong to me is the moral evil that I choose. Right? So my sinfulness, my brokenness, my, my spiritual misery, these all I ascribe to myself. And every good gift, every grace, every blessing, every talent, I ascribe to God, who is the author of all goodness. And that's the, the truth that the saints come to. Right? And it's a painful experience at times to come to that truth. But it's a freeing experience. And it's a, it, it, it leads us to a, a joyful and pe peaceful existence to know that I truly am nothing and that everything that anything good that, I that is in me belongs to God and anything that is bad in me belongs to me and I, I'm responsible for it. St. Paul says, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had, as if you had not received it? So in the moral life, again, everything belongs to me that is evil, and everything that is good belongs to, to the Lord. Saint, our, our Lord Jesus himself said, for without me you can do nothing. Right? So every good work, every advancement in holiness and perfection is by the grace of God, by, the, by his blessing in my life, right? For without him, we can do nothing. Um, so one contemporary writer, he said, in the twinkling of an eye, your earthly existence will be reduced to a rotting corpse. And in one more twinkling, your entire legacy will probably be forgotten on earth. And a future historian may even struggle to prove, prove you even ever existed. Will becoming famous change this? Not at all. Shortly after your death, dear famous person, someone will change the is following your name on Wikipedia page to was, and that page will scarcely be visited by anyone. For no matter what you achieve, the masses will be far too busy watching the next viral YouTube video to care about what you did. This is you, that is me. Right, it's kind of sobering, right? 
And I think it's not bad to think about that. Think about your, your death. Think about your funeral. Think about all the people who will weep at your funeral. And think about how, unfortunately or unfortunately, they will just resume their life after some days, some weeks, some months. Maybe very few people will be really impacted by your disappearance from this earth or my disappearance from this earth. So unless we become holy, unless we are remembered by God, right, then we see how futile w everything on this earth and all of the things that we accumulate, not just possessions, but honors and dignities and titles and all of these things. So self-forgetfulness is, is related to the humility that acknowledges the truth of who I am and who God is. Um, so what's the relationship between self-forgetfulness and love? One of the saints said that to love is not difficult. We begin to love as soon as we cease to think of ourselves. We begin to love as soon as we cease to think of ourselves. What makes us able to love the other is when I stop being preoccupied with myself. An example of a contemporary person where this is a very, very beautifully sort of lived out is somebody like Mother Teresa of Calcutta, right? Just this person who is completely forgetful of herself and that makes her totally available to love the poorest of the poor and the despised of society. So we can think of um, the spiritual life. In my first talk, I was saying how those who sort of analyze the, the progress in the spiritual life, they can look at stages, they can look at a ladder, they can come up with all these different models of how we, how we grow in the spiritual life. But a very simple way to think of the spiritual life is just moving along this spectrum of inordinate self-love to selfless love and self-forgetfulness, right? That we, we sort of have to fight against this self-love that, that is natural to our fallen state. And by the grace of God, we begin to live that life of self-forgetfulness and selfless love that makes us like God. Um, and so this is, in a sense, what St. Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 2 when he talks about the self-emptying of Christ, the, the kenosis, right? He uses that word kenosis, the kenotic love of Christ where he doesn't exploit, he doesn't exploit his divinity but takes the form of a, of a servant and becomes a slave even unto the death of the cross, right? So Christ, our Lord, lowered himself because in his love he emptied himself in order in order to, to be for us. And so his self-emptying, this kenosis that St. Paul talks about, is sort of the model of self-forgetfulness, right? We can call it self-forgetfulness. In Christ's case, it was he didn't exploit his divinity in order to love us by becoming a servant for us. And so another way of thinking of self-forgetfulness is that it leads us to this purity of intention, which I also talked about earlier in the weekend, right? That um, we can do many good things. We can serve, we can evangelize, we can um, help people. Um, but even when we do those good things on the outside, internally we might not have the best of intentions, right? So we might be seeking recognition. We might be um, struggling with vainglory. So, so even, even the good things that we do have to be purified so that we do them without thinking of ourselves, without seeking something for ourselves, only for the glory of God, only for the benefit of my neighbor, right? where I'm sort of completely out of the picture. Right? And that's a very difficult task you know, when we're so self-absorbed and um, self-focused. The ideal of, of this, of course, very beautifully is in the, the case of the mother of God, right? We see, and um, uh, Father Luke was talking about this yesterday, um, about how uh, St. Mary, for example, uh, went to St. Elizabeth, right? And, um, you know, she's the mother of God. She's visited by the Archangel Gabriel. She's told she's going to bear Emmanuel. And yet, in haste, she completely forgets of herself and all that's in front of her, and she goes and serves her relative, St. Elizabeth. Um, 
And what Mary offers Saint, uh, or what Saint Mary offers Saint Elizabeth, is something that she herself will be deprived of. Right? Um, she's so forgetful of herself that she will do for Elizabeth what nobody will do for her, because she will give birth in a manger, and nobody be, will be there to um, assist her like she was there for Elizabeth. One of the uh, contemporary nuns wrote, it seems to me that the soul that is aware of its greatness enters into that holy freedom of the children of God, of which the apostle speaks. That is, it transcends all things, including itself. The freest soul, I think, is the one most forgetful of self. If anyone were to ask me the secret of happiness, I would say it is to no longer think of self, to deny oneself always. That is a good way to kill pride. Let it starve to death. You see, pride is love of ourselves. Well, love of God must be so strong that it extinguishes all of our self-love. Right. Now, if you read this quote to um, somebody in contemporary society who is not familiar with the Christian tradition, they'll say, that's the stupidest thing like, in the world, right? Because we're, we're taught and told that we have to seek what's for our happiness by grabbing on to things and accumulating things and seeking what's our rights and our honors and, you know, and competing. And this nun is saying very much the opposite of that and saying that this is truly the secret to happiness. And she's right, because we have saints that, that live this and they are the happiest, most joyful, peaceful, loving people in the world. There's a relationship between self-forgetfulness and the passions, th our sins, our weaknesses, and our struggles. Um, oftentimes, self-love is, is, is a form of pride that is also attached to the sensual side of our being, right? And when I say sensual, I don't mean like explicitly like sexual, but I mean sensual meaning of the senses, right? We, 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 we crave that which feeds the senses, our appetites that feed our eyes, our, you know, taste, our touch, you know, th the things that we can um, possess that bring us pleasure. And these things, of course, when we become very um, attached to them, then they make us very, again, self-focused, self-absorbed, and we're not available for the others. Which is why, of course, the church gives us the tools like fasting um, and so many other um, tools that the church gives us in order to try to tame the sensual pleasures, to tame the senses, right? And and we need to practice this uh, not just by food and sleep, but by also quieting the senses, sort of starving the senses through solitude and silence and prayer um, so that we discover something within ourselves that is much more real and satisfying than the immediate satisfaction we, we get through the senses, but it's fleeting. It's just, it, does, it dissipates very quickly. Um, so that's the relationship between self-forgetfulness and the passions. There's also a relationship between self-forgetfulness and forgiving others. Right. A lot of my in interior sort of in, um, disturbances, resentments, and bitterness come from my self-occupation, right? Pre uh, preoccupied with myself, especially as it relates to how I've been wronged by others, right? or how I've been deprived from something because of others. Right. So I'm constantly thinking of sort of how my life isn't, um, isn't fair, you know, that there's this injustice, you know, I'm a victim. Um, but the Lord says, who, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, one of the contemporary spiritual fathers he gives us sort of a, a way out of this. He says, my neighbor despises me. He is wrong. Because he is of no more importance than I am. And God has forbidden him to despise me. But he is wrong because, no, but is he wrong because I am really worthy of esteem and because there is nothing in me that deserves contempt? No. If we were always to look upon things thus, only as they regard God's side of the question and not ours, we would not be so easily wounded, so sensitive, so given to complaining and getting angry. So what is he saying here? He's saying somebody 
deprives me of something, says something to me hurtful, hurts me in some way. Is he wrong? Yes, he's wrong. And that's something that he has to stand before God and, and deal with. But is he wrong because I'm, un I'm not really deserving of that contempt? Again, if we, if we humble ourselves and we ascribe all that is wrong and evil to myself, then certainly whatever comes my way, in a sense, I deserve. Maybe I don't think I deserve it from this person, but certainly I can accept it as coming from the hand of God. And if I sort of take the person out of the equation and just humble myself before God, then I can, I can slowly learn how to rid myself of this victimhood. Right? I know it sounds a bit tough, but maybe we, we all can think of small ways that we can practice that. Right? And that's how the saints lived. When somebody said a harsh word to them, they said, oh, Lord, the Lord sent you to say that to me. Whether you know it or not, whether you intended it or not, whether you saying it brings judgment upon you in front of God, nonetheless, that is the hand of God, and I accept it. Right? So that's how they defeated that self-love. Self-love or forget self-forgetfulness also is related, of course, to how we forgive others. Because if I'm forgetful of myself, then I also need to be forgetful of the negative things that others do. Right? If I'm going to be forgetful of myself in order to be available for others, then I also have to be forgetful of everything that's bad in somebody else and only remember that which is good. Right? Uh, Elder Paisius, he has this uh, beautiful sort of... Um, um, story or, or analogy where he says there are only two kinds of people in the world. Has anybody heard him uh, heard this before? He said there are the um, the bees and the flies. When when the bee goes into a room and there's garbage and flowers, it goes to the flowers. When the fly goes into the same room, it goes to the to the garbage and leaves the flowers. And he says, everybody in the world is either one of these, right? We either focus on the flowers or we focus on the garbage. And so when I practice self-forgetfulness, I also, the, the flip side of that is I'm forgetful of everything that is wrong and bad and, and evil in somebody else, and I only see the good, right? And that's why St. Paul says, I think it's in Titus, to the pure all things are pure. C.S. Lewis has this beautiful quote about uh, self-forgetfulness and our talents, right? Um, and this is sort of, again, this is sort of a, an interesting take on how, how we can acknowledge that we have talents, that God's given us talents, and yet we can be forgetful of them in a way that preserves our humility. Right? So C.S. Lewis says, he says, God wants to bring us to a state of mind in which we could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than we would be if it had been done by another. Right, so God wants us to have this um, feeling or this ex experience or that we could build the best cathedral in the world and we could, we could acknowledge it to be the best cathedral in the world and rejoice in the fact that it's the best cathedral in the world without being any more or less glad at having done it than if somebody else had done it. Does that make sense? And then he goes on to say, God wants us in the end to be so free from any bias in our own favor that we can rejoice in our own talents as frankly and gratefully as in our neighbor's talents. Right. So you, again, it's sort of, a, it can be, think of it as a criteria of judging whether you have a healthy, uh, um, acceptance and understanding of the talents God has given you. If you can be just as glad that somebody else has those talents and does the same things as you or even better than you, and you could be just as excited for them as you would be seeing the project done by yourself, then there's that equilibrium. Of course, another um, area that we can think of self-forgetfulness is that as it relates to suffering. 
because suffering is sort of this two-edged sword, right? It, it, can, it can lead us to um, an experience of entering into the sufferings of Christ, and it could be something that leads us to a very beautiful um, experience, but it could also be a very bitter experience, and we can be so uh, absorbed with ourselves that suffering can lead us to, again, resentment and bitterness and anger and alienation from God. Um, so again, another, uh, it's a long quote, but it's a beautiful one um, about this idea of self-forgetfulness and suffering. This author writes, he says, the secret of learning to suffer in a virtuous way consists chiefly in forgetting oneself and one's sorrows and in abandoning oneself to God. The soul that is absorbed in its own sufferings and concentrates its whole attention on them becomes unable to bear them serenely and courageously. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof, the Lord says, thus teaching us to bear calmly day by day, moment by moment, whatever sorrows and crosses God places in our path, with no thought of what we suffered yesterday, no worry about what we shall have to endure tomorrow. Even when our suffering is intense, let us not exaggerate it, nor attach too much importance to it. Let us not foster a morbid tendency to nurture our sorrow, to ponder over it, weighing and analyzing it under every aspect. To act in this way would result in the paralysis of our spirit of sacrifice, of our ability to accept and to act, and would make us useless to ourselves and to others. One who is oversensitive and preoccupied with his own suffering often becomes insensible and indifferent to the sufferings of others. We must forget ourselves, go out of ourselves and our own sufferings, become interested in the sufferings of others, and endeavor to alleviate them. This is a very effective way to regain in times of discouragement, the strength to bear our own crosses. We should be mindful of the truth that we are never alone in suffering, that if our sufferings are great, there are always those who suffer incomparably more than we do. Our troubles often enough are but a drop compared to the sea of sorrows in which mankind is engulfed and are practically non-entities in comparison with the passion of Jesus. Those of us overly concerned with their own troubles eventually become exasperated by them. Drowned in their sorrows, they stifle every impulse to generosity. By contrast, those who know how to forget themselves maintain their equilibrium and take greater thought for others than for themselves. They are always open to charity and generosity towards God and their neighbor. These are the simple souls who, because they are unmindful of themselves, can bear suffering magnanimously and derive much profit from their, for their own sanctification. I think says it everything there, right? It's beautiful. So let me move a little bit to, um, I, I mentioned in the beginning that we're going to look at self-forgetfulness, um, meekness, and modesty, and see how they're interrelated. Um, so move now to, to meekness. Meekness is, is, is a divine quality. It's the, it's the very uh, virtue in which Christ himself speaks of his own heart and asks us to emulate. Um, and, uh, of course, you know the famous uh, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. It's the only time sort of Christ uh, gives us that instruction to imitate him in, in something that is characteristic of his own heart, which is that meekness, lowly lowliness. Um, St. Paul, also in 2 Corinthians 10, 1, says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading you, pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It's interesting that he says that. Paul, of course, never saw the Lord in the flesh. He, had the, he of course, had the, the great vision of Christ. But, but still, he, he's saying, I implore you by that which belongs to Christ, which is his meekness and his gentleness. And then he says, I who am humble when face to face with you. And this meekness we see, like um, St. Matthew, the evangelist uh, in his gospel, he says of, of the Lord, quoting from the Old Testament, right, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. A reed that has a, 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 like a, a bruise in it is very fragile. It can very easily break. And when you have like an oil lamp and the wick is just about to go out, right, you could either extinguish it or you can reignite the flame. Uh, you know, it can reignite itself. And so he's saying that the personal, the heart of Christ is one that he will never... He will never break that bruised reed, and he will never allow that flame that's just about to go out to be quenched. Right. So what is meekness? 
Meekness is a very like difficult virtue to define because it encompasses so many things. It's, it's sort of this combination of gentleness, goodness, patience, humility, softness, peacefulness, goodwill, self-possession, non-violence or non-anger non or lack of anger. So it's, it's all of those qualities sort of combined that is the meek person. But it's very important that, that we don't mistaken um, meekness for weakness. Right? The Lord wasn't weak. He had a meek heart, but he wasn't weak. The saints e exhibited that beautiful meekness, but at times they could be lions. They could be, they could be bold and brave, right? So, so meekness is not timidity. It's not cowardice. It's actually the opposite. It's somebody who is so strong that they possess themselves enough to be able to have restraint. And so, in a sense, that, that, that word restraint is very important in meekness. Um, so, uh, and I, we quoted this yesterday, Luke 21, 19, by your patience, possess your souls, or by your patient endurance, possess your souls, right? So this idea of possessing yourself, self-possession, meaning when, when we acquire the virtues, we gain mastery over ourselves. We are no longer victims tossed by our passions, but we the become the masters of our passions, right? And that's, um, in a sense, what meekness is. It's somebody who is, has, has that self-possession of themselves, right? They are not um, they, they don't go off the handle by their anger, by their, you know, um, by their reactions, because they have that, that, that possession of themselves. They're, they're peaceful and gentle and kind and patient and humble. So that takes a lot of maturity and strength. It's not, again, it's not a weak person. Um, the, the great um, American, uh, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember Fulton Sheen, he was a what's you know, he's a wonderful. Uh, he was a he was an American bishop who had like a TV program in black and white. He was sort of very flamboyant, charismatic, um, but his meditations are are wonderful. His his sermons are beautiful. He says a weak man can never be meek because he is never self possessed. Meekness is that virtue which controls the combative, violent, and quarrelsome powers of our nature, and is therefore the best and noblest road to self realization. I actually think that a lot of evangelism and you know missionary stuff lacks this meekness, you know, and so it's it's something that we see characteristic in our saints that makes them attractive to open people's hearts and to, and to dialogue with them. Um, Saint John of the Ladder, Saint John Climacus, his famous Ladder of Divine Ascent, he says, "Meekness is an unchanging state of mind, which both in honor and dishonor remains the same. Meekness is a cliff rising from the sea of irritability." against which all the waves that strive against it break, but which, it, but which is itself never broken. Right? So it's stability, restraint, unchanging mind and heart. Right? Um, and there's a, there's a relationship, of course, between meekness and simplicity. Um, Pope Shenouda says, the meek are easy to deal with. He is simple. He has no cunning, craftiness, or malice. He is plain, does not complicate matters. He is clear in his dealings, does not beat around the bush. Dealing with him gives comfort because he is simple, clear, and pleasant. He is gentle, sweet, and good-natured. Right. So again, it's, it's so many of these qualities that, that come together. Um, again, Pope Shenouda says that the meek are the peacemakers. So it's related to, again, in the, beat the same Beatitudes. A meek person is obliging. He does not go on arguing, discussing, persisting, and inquiring what uh, and inquiring but does what is good and quietly immediately without delay and without discussion he does not hold to his views in everything as some may do but lets it pass as long as the matter is not against the commandments right? so that's an important thing like in, in arguments right in debates and discussions um, you know w all of us again and this relates to self-forgetfulness right like and we see this I mean the, the ones who who should speak the most are the saints right and they're often the ones that refuse to speak right they feel like they have nothing to say but they will speak when when they feel the spirit of God moving them to speak but otherwise they are not interested in debates and arguments and vain discussions 
Um, and, and, and very few words can be very impactful. But we live in a time, of course, where everything is debated and discussed and, and there are podcasts and, you know, and talk shows and, and, and everybody has an opinion and everybody has to argue with other people's opinions and we need to look at everybody's opinions. And so the meek person um, lets go of things unless it's against the commandments, unless it's against the truth of God. Uh, Elder Paisius writes, uh, two quotes, one from St. Dorotheos of Gaza, one of the great desert fathers. He says, one um, great means of preserving a constant peace and tranquility of heart is to receive all things as coming from the hands of God, whatever they may be and in whatever way they may come. So there's a relationship he's saying here between meekness and faith. The person who has that stability, tranquility, gentleness, patience, accepts everything coming from the hand of God and isn't shaken by it. So there's an aspect of faith there. And Elder Paisius says, sometimes God allows for a relative or a fellow worker to cause us problems in order to exercise our patience and humbleness. However, instead of being grateful for the chance God gives us, we react and refuse to be cured. It is like refusing to pay the doctor who is giving us a shot when we are ill. Elder Paisius tells a story. I just remember this story. I just don't have it in my notes, but he was saying he was visiting this church once when he was a simple monk, he wasn't a priest at the time. And um, uh, he knew this priest very well. And, um, and this priest loved him very well and, and revered him very much. And for some reason, the priest um, told him, um, Get to the, go to the back of the church, you're unworthy to be in the church. He, he said something very, like, uh, shocking. Um, and Elder Paisius, Elder Paisius quietly went to the back of the church behind everybody else and started praying and repenting and asking for mercy from God. And, um, and then during communion time, he told them, you get to the back of the line. So he went to the back of the line. And then after communion, the priest called him and, and was weeping. He says, I have no idea how I said those things to you. It wasn't even me who said them. And, and he was confused, you know. And... Um, and Elder Paisius realized that before he came to the church, he was, he was praying for humility. So God, in a sense, you know, uh, allowed er, this priest to, to, to test, even though the priest was somehow, like, not even uh, aware that he was speaking thus, thusly. And, um, and Elder Paisius told him, no, 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 it's not you. I, this is... This is this is because of my prayer. Right. Um, so this is this is this, this is the saints. This is how they live. Right. Uh, <laughs> there's, um, of course, so many stories with Pope Krulus about meekness, right? And I think that this is one of his chief virtues: is meekness. Um, there's one of my favorite stories about. Uh, if you've heard me speak about Pope Krulus, you've probably heard this story a million times. But uh, about an old man. His name is Uncle Fikri. Uh, Uncle Fikri was. Uh, Somebody who, an older gentleman, he wasn't married, didn't have kids, um, who used to go and pray with uh, Father Mina in the windmill, and then later with him in Old Cairo, and, and, uh, and even in the cathedral. Or maybe he started with him in Old Cairo, and then in the cathedral after he was pope. And he was a deacon. Uh, this is a good story for all the deacons, I guess. Um, and, uh, but he was, he was a bit, um, uh, what's, I don't know the best word, a bit crazy, <laughs> in that... Like the deacon, like most of our deacons, um, where he was very, he was very much. And it, it, when you listen to some of these old liturgies, there was a practice where sometimes the deacons and the priests would um, eat each other, right? Like not actually, each, you know what I mean? Like uh, while the deacons are finishing their part, Abun has already started his part, maybe silently, and then he raises his voice, and then sometimes and vice versa. And it was maybe to make the liturgy go a little faster. But I'm a fikr who's not going to have any of that. So he went to Abu Namina and he told them, look, we make a deal from the beginning. We agreed together. You do your parts, I do my parts. You don't interrupt my parts, I don't interrupt your parts. Right? So I'm a fikr, uh, Pope uh, Abu Namina, the solitary. He's like, yes, I agree. And in one of the liturgies, it seems like Abu Namina, he was either in a hurry, he wasn't feeling well, something. So... Um, during the time when I think it was uh, the part of um, the angels, the archangels, you know, uh, that uh, Abu Namina started a little bit before 
Mafikri um, finished his part. So then he waited, the deacon inside said his part, and then they were waiting for the outside, for Amafikri to do the, his part, and it was silent. So he waited, he turned around, Amafikri left the church. So what did Pope Corliss do, or Abu Namina do? He told the deacon inside, he said, here, stand in front of the altar with the candle and wait. He went outside the church, and he found uh, Amafikri, of course, uh, you know, um, and he said, what happened? He said, we had an agreement, you broke the agreement. I'm not praying with you. <laughs> Imagine saying that to a saint. Now, any one of us priests could have easily just smacked the person and said, take off your tunia, you're never dressing again. You know? Abu Amina bowed to him and said, forgive me, I promise I will keep my end of the deal. He said, you promise? We agree again from the beginning now. Right? <laughs> Fast forward to when he's a uh, patriarch and Amafikri is praying in the cathedral with the Pope. And there's the part um, after, Amin, 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 your death, O Lord, right? Um, and then the, the next part that the priest says, um, right, um, your passion, your death, your resurrection, you're coming, you're ascending to the heaven, you're sitting at the right hand of the Father, and your second coming from the heavens, awesome and full of glory. We offer unto you your gifts, right? So it seems that as they were doing, I mean, I mean, Abuna fini uh, Abuna, uh, the, pap the Pope now, Pope Karul has finished all the part and then just out loud said, we offer unto your gifts from what is yours for everything concerning everything and everything. So again, the next time he was supposed to respond, it was quiet. So, but this time he didn't eat his, he just ate his own part, right? Like, and so he turned to Amma Fikri and he's like, and he's like, no, you, you didn't, what am I going to respond to? You didn't say anything. <laughs> he literally told him, he said, I'm not, what, what should I respond to? You didn't even say anything. So he said, so you want me to repeat it? He said, repeat it, then I'll respond. <laughs> so he went back and repeated, you know, your passion, your resurrection from the dead. Self-possession, right? He could have, he could have, as a patriarch, as, as right, you, you get it. Um, I'm not giving the deacons any ideas. <laughs> the wounds are looking at me like, what have you done? <laughs> We're not going to do that with them if they do that. Um, okay, let me move to modesty now. Um, sometimes we think of modesty as um, just related to how we dress, um, how we present ourselves, right? But modesty is something much more important than just that. Um, modesty is really about, we, we could look again to Philippians 2, where St. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in, in Christ Jesus. Um, that verse comes right after uh, St. Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vanity, but, excuse me, but humbly regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Right. And then St. Paul also says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. So modesty is really about relinquishing my rights to give preference to another person. Right. So when, when the church or the priests or the servants, when, they, when we speak about modesty, let's just take clothing, for example. What we're saying is not necessarily, or what, what, the, what the virtue is saying not necessarily is that because what you're wearing, you are, do, you are committing just a sin against yourself, but you're not giving preference to the other. You're not thinking of the other. You're not relinquishing what's rightfully yours to display, to, to present, to flaunt, but you're not restraining that right for the sake of the other. And that's what immodesty is. Right? And it doesn't have to be about clothing. It could be about our speech. It could be, as we're going to see through some different examples, that modesty is much more encompassing. Right? And, it, and it is really, I would say, modesty is the culture of the church. The culture of the church. What do I mean by the culture of the church? Everything we do in the church the spirituality of the church that we, that we beautifully gain from the Desert Fathers and from the saints of all generations, 
the way we do things in the church is through modesty. Right? The simplest things, which we'll give some examples. So modesty is, is the virtue that presents goodness, but in the proper way. Without making a display of it, whether it's our bodies or our talents or our speech, um, because of our humility, right? And it protects not only us, but it protects the other person. I care so much about the other person that I'm willing to give up what is rightfully mine out of preference for the other. So it's, it's, a it's more than just a refusal to show off, but it it's, it's really comes from a heart that is overflowing out of love for the other person that thinks of the other, again, it's related to what? Self-forgetfulness. Um, so at its core, it's this protection of my neighbor. I'm so concerned with my neighbor that I want to protect them by, by any means, even at the expense of depriving myself. So I as I said, it affects our speech, our manners, our dress, our spiritual gifts, our talents, our rights. Right? Again, this goes against everything contemporary cultural teaches us. So let me give you some examples of how this is like lived out in the church. So giving preference to one another, right? Uh, I spoke about Pope Corliss. We could take many examples from his life. He was a patriarch. He was very well educated. People think that he didn't preach because he, no, he was very well educated in terms of his spiritual knowledge. Uh, he knew the, the ascetical homilies of St. Isaac the Searing very well, which most of us with advanced degrees will never understand. When he, was a, when he was in the theological seminary for monks in Helwan, he was giving sermons. It was once that the patriarch heard his sermon that want, what caused him to want to ordain him as a bishop. So it wasn't that he wasn't able, he was more than able, but he, he chose to live this modest life by giving preference to others. So you won't find any sermon of Pope Carlos in all the years that he served. Because he always gave the bishops and the priests who were praying the liturgy with him to preach. And he often would be found listening and weeping at the words that he was hearing from their sermons. Right? So again, that, that, that image of, 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 of modesty. Certainly, we at least begin by not being competitive with one another. Right? We have that beautiful tradition. Sometimes it can be annoying, right? Where like, you know, as clergy or as monks, you know, it's like we bow to one another, like until somebody says, please, just somebody pray so we can eat, you know? Um, but it's a beautiful thing. Right? It's a beautiful thing. Um, we see it in, in how we deal with each other and letting go through forgiveness. Right? Why do I forgive? I forgive because I care so much about you. I don't, want, I don't want to put that burden on you. I forgive you before you ask for forgiveness. That's what one of the Desert Fathers said. What is the definition of humility? And he replied, it is to forgive our neighbor or our brother who has wronged us before he asks for forgiveness. So... I don't wait even to be asked to forgive the person. I've already forgiven them. I want to lift that burden off of them. I don't matter. They matter. Right? Um, in bearing the weaknesses of each other. In bearing the weaknesses of each other. Right? St. Macarius was known, what, for hiding the sins of, of his children and, 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 you know, protecting them from being exposed. This is the, 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 the culture of the church. We don't expose one another for our own b advantage or benefit. We cover one another, right? We should definitely in the service, we should be doing that. If as priests, as bishops, as, as, as servants in Sunday school, we don't go up the ladder by rejoicing in somebody else who has made a mistake or who has, you know, has done something that has lowered them, but we cover one another, right? And there are so many examples in the Desert Fathers of that. In our, um, in our conversations with one another, um, again, we have to be careful not to dominate conversations. You know, not to, because I have so much knowledge inside of me, to sort of usurp the space of my, of my fellows. Um, one of my favorite contemporary saints is Abuna Andraus Samuili. You don't know if, if you, he's the, the, the monk from St. Samuel's Monastery, he died in the late 1980s, I think 1989. He was blind from his childhood and lived to be, I think, 102 years old. Maybe you know the famous story of the, him with the cat. Um, if, if you're not familiar with him, I, I encourage you to, to try to familiarize. He's a beautiful, beautiful contemporary saint, very meek, embodies this meekness. 
And um, when he was, we know a lot about him because in the end of his life, he spent years in, the, in a, a hospital in Alexandria. And so it was the director of the Christian hospital there that wrote his biography. And uh, many people used to go visit him from Alexandria and, and, uh, and take his blessing. So that's why we know some things about him, even though St. Samuel's Monastery in those days was very hard to visit and, and to, to know anything about. Um, but in his, in his biography, this is written about him. It says, We never noted him speak violently to anybody, nor did he impose his opinion on anybody, nor did he try to master a discussion about any subject. He had no ambitions or gains to realize, and so he did not enter into heated discussions with anybody. And even if he saw somebody doing something wrong, one of the monks said about him, he is too shy to tell a man that he is in the wrong because he is oversensitive of his own sins. I know um, one of the fathers who is very close uh, to me um, from our diocese uh, who grew up attending, um, or, uh, visiting St. Samuel's Monastery because he's from Minya, and he used to go to St. Samuel's Monastery and spend like summers there when he was growing up. And he, he's too young to have known uh, Abuna Andrawas directly, but he knows many of the monks who experienced Abuna Andrawas. And one of the, the monks there was telling him, you won't believe how we used to test Abuna Andrawas and to get a sense of his humility and his meekness. He said Abuna Andrawas would be sitting, he's blind, right? He's just sitting, praying, uh, singing. And one of the monks would come to him and others would be watching like, watch this. And they would say, uh, Abuna Andrawas, uh, get up, we're gonna go eat. So immediately he would get up and wait to follow the, and then they would say, Abuna, sit down, you're not going to eat today. And he would sit down. And then, Abuna, go to the church, we're going to pray the whatever. He'd get up and start going to church. Abuna, sit down, you're not, don't go to the church. And they, would, they were amazed by, by, by his humility, his meekness. And he was just always smiling like an angel. Um, not being overly demanding with others, right? We should be, again, one of the characteristics of the saints is that they're demanding of themselves, but never demanding of others. They are strict on themselves, but merciful to others, right? A beautiful story about Pope Krulis was uh, uh, two young men were visiting the monastery during Holy Week, and um, one of them was not really into church, and his friends sort of begged him to come with them, which was probably not a good idea to go to the monastery during Holy Week when you're not familiar like with the services and so on. So I think it was Good Friday and, and the Pope was in the monastery. And this, uh, the friend, the one who was not very um, attentive or uh, used to attending church, he had enough of the services and he was starving. So he went to the kitchen looking for something to eat and he saw where they were, all the food was being prepared for after the, the, the services of Good Friday, the, the monks would eat. So he just started eating, and then all of a sudden he heard somebody behind him. He turns around, and it's Pope Krolus. And of course he freezes, and Pope Krolus tells him, my son, sit down, sit down. He says, what brings you to the monastery where the monks are in these long services and prayers, and uh, sit down, sit down, eat, 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 eat. Wait, wait one minute, wait one minute. Said the Pope went to his room or to somewhere, and he came back with a, fruit of, a, uh, a plate of fruit. He said, eat, 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 eat. Good Friday, right? So the meek person, again, is, is, is hard on themselves, but, but doesn't burden the other person. Um, there's, a <laughs> there's a funny story in the Desert Fathers about uh, argu uh, arguing. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard this story before, but it's really nice. Uh, two hermits lived together for many years without ever fighting with each other. They never had a quarrel. So one of them said to the other, let's have a quarrel with each other as other people in the world do. Let's like, have you heard this story? <laughs> so the other answered and said, I don't know how to quarrel. I don't know how that happens. So the first said, look, here, I will put a brick between us. And I will say, this brick is mine. Then you will say, no, this brick is mine. And in such a way, we will have a quarrel. So he put the brick between them and he said, this brick is mine. And then the other said, no, it's mine. And so the first one who devised the plan, he said, well, if it's yours, then take it and go your way. <laughs> um, there's a beautiful story about uh, St. Bishoy. Um, 
Do we have time? Are we on time? I got like five minutes. I think I could do it. Okay. So um, it's very important, I think, that we recognize that the reason why we have different talents in the church, different spiritual gifts, different levels of endurance, is 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 because the grace of God who works in us is sort of it's divide it's apportioned to us by God who knows what is best for us. Right? And so there's this beautiful story in the life of Saint Bishoy, um, Saint Bishoy, the beloved of our good Savior, right? The one that we all know who washed the feet of our Savior. It says um, that he. In this part of his biography, the Lord is teaching St. Bishoy a very important lesson, right? Abba Bishoy was fasting for 21 days. So 21 days without eating. Our Lord appeared to him and said, My chosen Bishoy, your soul has been very courageous. St. Bishoy said to him, My Lord, my confidence rests upon you that you will strengthen me. Because of this, I do not have any weaknesses at all. In other words, I feel, I feel like I, this is, I can do this. Our Lord led him, directing him to a weak brother who fasted for just two days. St. Bishoy saw him falling down upon the ground and stumbling this way and that, looking for something cool and something and some air from the suffering he was enduring from his fasting. So uh, St. Bishoy is fasting for 21 days and he's full of strength. And he sees this young monk who after two days is like all dramatic and falling and <laughs> fainting and and so St. Bishoy said to our Lord, my Lord, what is the problem with this brother? Our Lord said to him, it is because he fasted the night. St. Bishoy said to him, how many nights since he began to fast until he fell down and was thrown to the ground? Our Lord said to him, from when I created him, I did not deprive him of, of a meal a single day except for this night. And see, I have sent upon him hunger and weakness. But as for you, having fasted for 21 days, did you perceive the affliction was anything like this? St. Bishoy said, no, my Lord, but I wish that you would tell me, um, you would tell me what are you going to give to this brother and what will be his reward. Our Lord said to him, I will give him his wages such as I will give to you. This is the important part. I will give him his wages such as I will give to you. As for you, I have strengthened you against fasting and hunger. This wage apportioned to one who does not have the strength and who will suffer accordingly to, by his measure for my name, I tell you, will enter now into the joy of his Lord. Right. So you see how the Lord gave St. Bishoy the strength and the ability to fast 21 days. And this young monk, he, the Lord said, I have never deprived him of a meal his whole life. But basically, he's saying that what this young monk is, is doing with that two days of fasting it will be equal to what you're doing because it's my grace that is apportioned to both of you. Um, so it goes on to say, although he has been fasting only two days, no, I think this is, uh, I'll just, just sort of summarizing what I just said. So, okay. Um, the last thing is, um, is sort of, and this might be delicate in terms of our service and our evangelism is how do we live that life of hiddenness, but at the same time, not light, you know, putting our light under the basket, you know, not, and, 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 and using our talents in a way for the glory of God and for the edification of the body. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful seventh century uh, saint, his name is uh, Abba Pesentius. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. Sometimes in Arabic they call him Bisentheus. I think his monastery is in uh, under Amabimen wherever that is in Upper Egypt, near Nag Hammadi, in that area. Um, but Abba Pesentius was a 7th century uh, solitary saint. And his biography, uh, they, 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 the monastery in um, Australia, they came out with a very nice book about him in English. In, the, in that biography, there's this story. Um, two men visited uh, St. Pesentius. Um, when they came to him, they heard him reciting the words of the book of Jeremiah. So he was reciting, was reading out loud the book of Jeremiah with, it says here, with great calmness and clearness. And so they didn't want to disturb him. So they sat outside his cell until he finished the whole book of Jeremiah. It's quite long. <laughs> um, and they said, it's not right that we, you know, it, that we interrupt his prayer and his reading. We wait until he finishes reciting the scriptures. When, when Abba Pesentius concluded the book of Jeremiah, and had finished his prayer, the two men got up to try to, you know, knock on his door. And at the very 
moment that they did that, Abba Basentius began to recite the book of Ezekiel. And so they sat down again and did not interrupt Abba Pesentius. Finally, after Abba Pesentius finished the whole book of Ezekiel, and it says, and shut his mouth, I don't know why that's the English, <laughs> and shut his mouth, for the evening had come, then the two men finally knocked on the door of Abba Pesentius, who answered them by saying, bless me. He looked upon them from a large window in his cell and asked them, did you come to this place many hours ago? And they said to him, we came here at dawn, but we did not dare to cry out unto you until you had finished your recitation of the scriptures. Then straightway Abba Pesentius wept, and he smote his breast and said to them, This day I deserve a very great punishment, and all the labors which I have performed are things of vanity. Now these things which the holy man spoke showed that he fled from the vain adulations of men. He was very sad at heart, but the two men knew that he, because the two men knew he was reciting the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Know therefore, O my beloved, that the saints yearn for the glory of God only. So why, why was he sad? Why was he? Because he was exposed. Right? So there is in the saints this, this desire to hide, to hide their talents, to hide their gifts, to hide their, their intimacy with God. They don't want it to be exposed. They don't want to lose that which is precious, like a precious ointment that, that, that is poured out before God. And they certainly don't want to be tempted with vainglory and with pride. Um, and we see this in our church very beautifully, right? We, we preserve our humility even in the way we worship, right? Like, what's, what's wonderful about Orthodox worship is that we do everything together, right? Like, like an orchestra. Like, so, you know, um, when we stand, we all stand. Of course, unless somebody is, is ill or has a reason. And when we sit, we all sit, right? We all cross ourselves at certain times in the, in the service. We all bow down or, or, or kneel at certain times. Right? And there are certain times where it's appropriate for us to lift up our hands in prayer. But we, we don't see anybody who, let's say, when it's time for sitting, somebody comes in the middle of the aisle and starts doing prostrations, right? That wouldn't be appropriate, right? It would, it would, provoke, it would provoke other people it would bring upon the person maybe uh, self-righteousness. Maybe, maybe it would provoke jealousy in me. Uh, say, oh, look how, look how holy this person is. I, I, I don't have that piety. I, I can't pray like him, right? So the way we worship preserves our humility, right? And so I, as I have quoted Father Zacharias so many times over the weekend, he was talking about this, and he said, in your private prayers, in your personal prayers, is you could pray, you want to speak in tongues, you want to beat your head against the wall, you, wanna, you can do that, I mean, with the direction of your spiritual father. But when you're with others, you don't do anything to provoke the other person, to usurp their space, to reveal yourself, right? There's, a, again, a story in the Desert Fathers of a, an elderly monk who came into the church, and he looked, and he saw that the church was empty, and so he threw himself down and gave out a great cry of a sigh, like before God. And then as he was praying, he saw that there was a young novice in the corner kneeling. So immediately the, the old monk went to the novice and, and begged for forgiveness. He said, forgive me, uh, I have not yet made a beginning. Right? He, 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 was, he, he was embarrassed that, that he was exposed, that, that he might provoke this young monk to jealousy, that he might you know, uh, bring the young monk to despair if he saw the great cry that came out of him and this young monk who has not yet learned how to pray in such a way. So that's the culture of the church. All of these stories are, some of them humorous, but, but all of them are, are meant to help us to, to see that this culture, that, that's the culture of our church. And we, we need to be careful that we don't take another culture, right? I know, like, there's a lot of enthusiasm for our evangelism and missionary work, and but we need to we need to I think follow the examples of the saints and the culture that the church gives us to to do real orthodox evangelism, you know, to bring people into that beautiful again culture of the church, which is so contrary to the the culture of the world. I'll just end with um, this beautiful dialogue between um, the Lord and one of the Western saints. Her name is Saint Catherine of Siena, who had these dialogues with the Lord, and, uh, and he says to her, Christ says to her, do you know, daughter, who I am and who you are? Do you know, daughter, who I am and who you are? If you know these two things, you have beatitude within your grasp. You are she who is not, 
and I am he who is. Let your soul become penetrated with this truth, and the enemy can never lead you astray. You will never be caught in any snare of his, nor ever transgress any commandments of mine. You will have set your feet on the royal road, which leads to the fullness of grace and truth and light. You are she who is not, and I am he who is. And glory be to God forever. We want to thank Abuna uh, Krolos. Abuna Krolos has to leave us now to go to the airport. Um, but we have a parting gift for him. Thank you so much, Abuna. And Abuna Luke also will give you your gift now since we're giving out gifts.